Hi, I'm Emma Alfonso, and I'm on John Littlefair's podcast, Never Just a Dog. It's really good to have you here. Thanks for doing this. This is amazing. I know it's been a pretty tough time for you. I want to, yeah, actually thank you for creating this podcast because when my dogs died, the first thing I did was go on Apple Podcasts and start searching dog grief, dog loss, because I was so desperate. And somehow your podcast came up um, and I was so glad that it did because it came just at the right time. And yeah, I just want to commend you on what you're doing. Because I know how much hard work it takes and how much time and effort and, and, and everything that's involved in building a podcast. So I think you've just hit this niche market for us dog lovers, just a, a place to come together, for all of us to be together and share our stories, which I think is awesome. So first of all, I congratulate you on what you've created. And I want to say thank you for having me here. Yes, lovely, lovely to say. But what I'm dying to ask you, Ivana, is the 1990s and war breaks out in Yugoslavia. You were quite young then. Share with me your life, what you can remember of that time. Yes. So I think any person's beginning is quite important because you sort of need to connect the dots of the journey that that person had as a child to where they are, you know, when they purchase their dog or they end up building their family. So I think it's really important to give, I guess, a background and a context as to why I still cry for my dogs now and why they were so important. So yeah, I was born in 1988 in former Republic of Yugoslavia. So for anyone who doesn't know even where that is now, it doesn't exist anymore. At the time, it was one big country made up of all different, you know, uh, nationalities and religions. So, you know, Croatians, Serbians, Bosnians, to be more specific, Macedonians, you know, quite a lot of cultures in one place. So I was born yeah, in a specific time in history. Um, I was only about six years old when the war broke out. So the war went from 1990 to 1995. And yeah, look, we actually fled our hometown. Uh, lived, I grew up in a very small village. So if you think like rural, you know, mountain life, that was me. Where, you know, we had animals and animals were of a service. You know, you, you treasured them, you cherished them, but you treated them as such, just as animals, you know, so they weren't pets, they weren't these domesticated beings. You, people didn't have their dogs inside. Um, so, you know, we always went up to the fam, you know, to the family dog that was on a chain on a, in a little house outside and he used to get fed all the leftovers, all the pork, you know, all the good stuff, but he was essentially there to guard the property. So when we fled that time, our house, we actually had to release all the animals, which was really sad. And we had to release the dog. So we never know what happened to them. Obviously that was also a really sad part of everything too. We fled and eventually we refuged to Germany. So we were in a refugee home in Germany. So, and then we managed to stay there for five years. And yeah, life there was tricky, it was difficult because your refugees come into this, you know, Anglo-Saxon sort of, you know, Catholic country with white people, like blonde hair. <laughs> you know, here you are coming like this gypsy child, you know, dark skin, different name, very, you know, which they didn't like that, you know. So no matter where you were from, they just thought you were gypsies, even though you, you know, you weren't. So there was a lot of um, cultural barriers there, language barriers, all sorts of things were happening, obviously, even during the wartime, you know, poverty, um, not having food. Uh, you know, constantly seeking shelter, constantly seeking safety. Um, the men were off in the army. They were serving in the front line. So not having my dad around, not knowing where my uncles were, not knowing where my grandfather was. So it was a really, really tricky time as a child to navigate. So I guess your nervous system from a very young age learned how to, you know, fight or flight, you know. So it was just in this survival mode, you know, from a very young age. So you become very anxious and very scared of the unknown. But in a way, you're used to that because that, this is your life now. So your only job is just to survive and eat, you know. So it was hard to sleep, hard to hard to do any of that. Couldn't play in certain places because, you know, there was tanks there, there was landmines, there was all sorts of things happening, people dying every day, you know, going to collect vegetables and crops and things. So you couldn't even really go and pick from your own garden. You know, you had to squat at random houses because you were trying to reach that next destination to safety. So... There was a lot of layers and a lot of complexities there, um, which I'm still unearthing now at 34 years of age, you know, so I guess you only start to do these things when you become safe as an adult. Um, and that's sort of how our journey led us to here. Five years in Germany, 
which was also a whole other chapter in itself. Uh, and then we actually came on a refugee visa to Australia. So we had actually applied for a five year period and uh, we got denied every time because there was such a large influx of refugees coming to Australia at the time from where we were from. So hence why there's a lot of, you know, Croatians and Serbs and, you know, ex-Yugoslavian people in Sydney, even in Perth and, and all those, you know, certain pockets. Uh, we were lucky we had an auntie here, so we came straight to the Gold Coast here in Australia. And, uh, yeah, we, we just sort of tried to settle in this new life here, which was very, like, coming to Australia was like, I mean, you've travelled, you've been yeah. overseas, and you come back to Australia, but the thing is you're from here, so you don't get that cultural shock, you know. You get a cultural shock when you go elsewhere, whereas when we came here, we, we got a cultural shock because we thought, look at the lights, like, everything's different, you know, the electricity switches, like, the roads, the people, we're seeing, like, kangaroos hop around, like, it was just so strange, like, being fed Vegemite the first time. How was your oh, first time? I was, like, 12 Vegemite? years old, and my cousin said, this is Nutella, this is really sweet, you'll love it, and I thought, okay, <laughs> me being so naive, you know, believing them, because they're my family, they're not going to try and fool me, you know, I just take this one big bite, and I'm just like, oh, my God, almost vomited, then I see this massive cockroach on the floor and I'm just like, like, where, where are we? And even my mum, like, mind you, in winter, where we are from, it's snowing. It's like minus 20 degrees weather. So we've been like fermenting cabbage. We've been, you know, this is what, this is like traditional stuff we were doing every year growing up. All of a sudden we've come here, we're eating this heavy cabbage soup with mincemeat and bread and everyone else is having prawns and it's like we're sweating <laughs> and there's this fan that's like spitting out water and my mum's just like, I don't think we belong here, you know. It just felt like being a fish like you grew up in one fish tank and then you got taken out and you yeah. got put in totally different water altogether with, with different fish, you know, with the different, yeah. So that was quite challenging. How were you accepted? I mean, the culture shock coming yeah. to Australia, eating Vegemite, and I agree with that. You have to you have to eat it on day one of your life, otherwise I don't think <laughs> you'll ever adopt. It's definitely different, you know, the food, the people, the language. Mind you, we didn't yep. know any English when we came here, so we had to go from – talking Croatian our whole life, then to talking German, then from talking and mastering German, we had to talk English, you know. So at that stage, I guess it didn't feel like it was that hard because I felt like I've already done this before. I've already done the groundwork, you know. But the kids here were a lot more, I would say, warm and inviting. I think there was a lot of racism, but it was not to your face. Um, it was sort of more behind your back. So I think, you know, people were more curious about you. They wanted to know about you, almost like you're an avatar coming from this different world. But they, yeah, but in a way you knew you were different and they knew you were different. So then you sort of felt like you were stuck between two worlds. I'm not fully here, but I'm not fully there. So then I guess because you are new and you don't know anyone and your parents are looking for work, you're looking for some sort of community to plug into, we started going to the Croatian club. Um, so that's how I guess most people cope when they come here, you know, or at that time. They find the Italian club, the Greek club, the Croatian club, you know, and they sort of tend to go there for for love, for support, for, for whatever it might be because, you know, you have to start building this new community and it's very hard to do that when you don't have the language. So it's very hard for you to assimilate. Um, my parents did start going to school here, so they were going to TAFE. And they were doing English lessons, but for us kids, it was basically like get into school and sink or swim. So to a degree, I guess we were lucky because we came at the right time. There was a lot of foreigners coming at that time. So I guess the Australians were like, they were accepting of it. It was okay versus let's say 50 years ago when Italians were coming and pasta sauce wasn't even a thing. So I feel like the previous foreigners and the previous generations already broke away for us for when we had come. So we, yeah, we simulated and I guess you just have to. And then you sort of start to talk like everyone else, act like everyone else as you do as a child. You know, you sort of start to mimic just what's around you because you don't want to be different. You don't want to stick out. Let's talk dogs. Oh. Let's talk dogs. Oh, man, yeah. When did dogs come into your life in Australia? You said that it was very different where you grew up because mm. it was – in a sense, the animals are there for, for service, like you said, yeah. as opposed to loving companions that they have become now. When was that point that mm. dogs came into your, your new life in Australia? 
Well, to put it in perspective, I got chased. So we grew up with this inherited fear of dogs. Uh, so we pretty much got taught that all dogs are going to bite you. So you can imagine how I grew up. So you pretty much thought any dog that approached you or you approached was going to bite you. So I had like, I, you know, immediately if a dog sort of got excited, I would jolt backwards and think, oh my God, I can't pat you. I only saw little fluffy dogs as innocent, you know, so I thought this dog can't do anything. I'm bigger than this dog. So we inherited this silly fear from our parents, I guess, as well. Like, mind you, they grew up in a different time. So, But kids take on their parents' fears, obviously, and mentalities and all sorts of things. Obviously, as you start to get older, you start to decondition and you start to shed all of your old beliefs because, you know, you're in a new place now with new people living this new life. And everybody here was a keen dog lover. And I remember my mum, like the first time we were walking somewhere, there was a pram and mum thought it was a child. And she's like, oh, it's a little baby, you know, being this European woman, she loves kids. We come from this big family and the lady pulls it back and it's a Pomeranian, like in this little pram. <laughs> and my mum's like, oh, she's like, you know, doing these ones, like with her hand, like she's like, oh my God, she's praying to God. Like, where have I come? This is crazy land. You know, and she said there's more people walking dogs here than what there is children. Like she saw more dogs on the on the street, you know, walking than children. And I was like, well, mum, you know, even in Germany, people are keen dog lovers. They love their animals, you know. So everywhere but sort of where we were from had a different mentality. So my mum was shocked. So obviously we couldn't have pets. I remember my first experience in Germany, we begged my father that we could get a little kitten because we had a godmother and she was animal obsessed. So that's where sort of the obsession started because I'd be a little child and I'd go to her house and she had parrots, she had dogs, she had cats, she had all sorts of things. And I loved it, you know, and my mum's like, yuck, the hair's everywhere, like it smells, you know, we, we loved it because we just thought it was crazy town and we were like, this is awesome being little kids, you know. We had all these animals around. So when I came to Australia, I always wanted to have a dog or a cat, like a family friend, you know, that lived with us. My parents were, no, 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 no. So every animal they ever had ran away. We had a bird, the bird flew away. They had a dog that used to be my sister's that they couldn't take in their new property which we sort of adopted, but then that dog also ran away, somehow went missing. So they were just safe to say they couldn't really keep any pets and I was devastated. So we had this little dog called Merdo, which was this little, uh, he was, I don't know, he was a mutt breed, you know, and when my parents used to go out, me and my little brother used to let him inside the house. So we used to sneak him inside the house oh, and hug him and kiss him. Oh, my God. And then my parents would come home. My mum would look at the carpet and she'd say, I see paw prints. And I'm like, no, you don't. So then we realised that the following time they would go out, we'd have to vacuum as well so that yeah, they wouldn't yeah, see any traces. <laughs> yeah, so that was sort that of up. like, yeah, our first experience. I, I think I was maybe like 15 or something like that, 16, and, and maybe even older. And I just thought it was cool having this dog, but I felt sorry for him that he was outside, you know, especially when it would rain. They would allow him into the laundry but I just thought, no, he needs to be inside. So that's when I started forming love for this. I always knew I had the capacity, but I guess when you've never been given the chance, you're not really sure. What happens next? And when did you get your first yeah, dog so that was when, yours? Oh, yeah, that was just the funniest experience because Andrew and I, so my husband Andrew, um, we got together when we were quite young and we always sort of dreamt of, you know, we had this bucket list and on that bucket list was we're going to get a dog. You know, like any young couple, the first thing you're going to do is get a dog, right? Because that's just, you know, what you do. And, you know, we talked for years and years and years and years and somehow this name Bruno came up, you know. And we're like, yeah, I said, I love the name Bruno because, you know, Italian, Croatian, like it's cute and whatever. So your know, hubby's just, from an Italian, he, Italian yes, uh, yes. Back, background. Yeah, yeah so he, he grew up here with um, his Italian parents. And they always had dogs, so they always loved animals. So opposite, you know, to my family. So his mum and dad had a massive, you know, Great Dane when he was growing up. Then they had chihuahuas. Like also his mother had animals growing up, the great-grandfather back in Italy. They all had animals, you know, so it was just a normal thing. Um, and they really loved pets. So when I used to go to their house, it was just like, yeah, there was this dog, family dog who was 18 years old. And I thought, Jesus, he's still alive? Like, and my husband's like, yeah, babe, he's 18. His name was Coco. And I thought, he's so cute. So I guess I started to warm up to the idea even more because they always had pets. And I think we moved out 
We moved out with my sister and my brother-in-law. We couldn't have a pet there, so we thought we have to wait until we get our own place, you know. So we ended up moving into his parents' apartment and finally the fence went up and we could sort of start the motion. So I said to him, you know, I was looking for all sorts of different breeds. It took me about a year to narrow down what I liked, you know, and I said to him, I want a big dog with big paws that doesn't do much. And he said, okay. And <laughs> mind you, I was a really sporty type, so I don't know why I was looking for a fat, lazy dog, but, you know, I just said, I just want to like a big dog, like a proper dog. I don't want this little thing. I just, it's like a toy. He says, okay, babe, whatever. So for like a year before we moved out, I'm looking for different breeds and I narrowed it down to a French Mastiff, a Staffy or a German Boxer. And then I had memories resurfacing from when I had visited the home country um, of like this boxer, Bella. And I remember her, she was so ugly, but she was so cute, you know, and she would vomit and then she would eat her own vomit. And I thought, ew, you're so gross. But she had the sweetest, littlest face, you know, and she used to follow us everywhere. So I thought, I think I want to get a boxer. And he said, oh, that's really rare because there isn't that many boxers around. Next thing you know, I gave him the green light. The guy's already looking at breeders. You know, we did want to go to the pound. We thought, let's do the right thing and go to the pound. But I was really hesitant because I thought, I don't know what I'm getting. You know, we're going to have children. I want to make sure this dog is a family dog. So I was top 10 family dogs. And there you go. German Boxer came up. Next thing you know, we're going to the breeders uh, before Bruno was even born. Bruno comes home. Eventually, Bruno, Bruno oh, comes Bruno, home. Bruno, the day what was we picked Bruno. Time? Oh, my God. The day we picked Bruno up, we actually celebrated Andrew's grandparents. So, Nono Nona, we celebrated their, I think, like 60th or something wedding anniversary at the casino. So, we had this big family lunch. And my husband, and we picked him up that day. So, my husband said, let's go. We've got to pick up Bruno. And he was maybe about an hour and a half drive from where we were. So we told the family, we're going to leave the lunch. We're going to go pick up our, our you know, first baby, our new dog, and who had already been christened and named before he was even born. <laughs> and we used to visit him prior, like lots of visits. Like I became obsessed, so we were visiting continuously. And um, his mum's name was Greta, funnily enough. She, she, was, she was a hoot. And eventually, yeah, we pick up Bruno, we get to the farm, we get him, Andrew plonks him in my lap, and he starts driving. And he's like, congrats, babe. And I'm like what the hell is this thing? And he was just lanky and floppy and like, because they developed some sort of fungal disease or something. So they had to go to the vet or the, or the litter. So we actually ended up getting him when he was a tad older. So he was already a bit taller and had like those lanky legs. And I was like, whoa. And he was just on top of me, paused on my chest. We're driving this little Toyota Astra and my husband's driving and he's so excited. And I'm just like frozen. And I'm like, Oh, he's what have really we done? Weird. What have we done? What have we done? <laughs> I thought all the lead up, like I was so good at all the planning. Now all of a sudden these dogs in front of me and I'm like, like, how do I act? Like, I don't know what to do. My husband's like, just be yourself, just relax. And I'm like, he was just so normal and so natural. But for me, it was this out of body experience, like this realization of there's no turning back now. Like, this is our dog. Like, That's I can't it. take him back. Like, it's not no longer just a fun idea. Now we actually have to raise him, you know, and we had the bed ready and the toys and, oh, my God, I went all out, you know. But, yeah, so the drive home was really interesting because he was just crawling all over us and, you know, biting us with his little teeth and and we were just driving and I just was looking at him like he's looking at me and I'm just like, hi. <laughs> then we eventually get home and all of our family was there. So you can imagine Andrew's whole family's there. There's probably about... 20 people in my little apartment, like maybe 30 people, including children. So that was Bruno's first introduction to our family. And Bruno went, <laughs> right. I'm sure he was already plotting, let's pick out the weakest one, the, the one that's just oh, going to give me anything he, that I want. You know what? He was like a glove. He just fit right in. We, we brought him home. Everyone's already there. You know, had the keys. Everybody was already inside. We put him on the floor. He went outside. He did his little wee-wees. Like, he, he was just totally just slotted in. Like, there was no, what, not timid, not shy. And I guess he's a puppy, you know, so he hasn't, he doesn't need to be scared. Everything's new, you know. And the kids loved him. And I remember he fell asleep uh, on our little cousin's daughter. He nuzzled in on her neck. And there's a photo. And she was only small. He was small. And he nuzzled in on her neck and fell asleep there. And I just thought... This is so cool. Like, he's just now become this, like, he's been integrated into this family overnight. I said to my husband, I want him to be this, like, army dog and listen really well, but come on, it's like I got a boxer. As I was ever going to expect a boxer <laughs> to yeah, be, yeah, like, yeah. this, like, <laughs> army-style dog, you know, that's yeah, just not yeah. what's, like, in their nature. So I was trying to turn him into this dog 
that he was just never going to be, instead of just accepting him for the dog that he was, which was funny and bouncy and cuddly and all these things, you know. So I, I was sort of resisting and I was like pushing back and he kept on whinging. I said to my husband, he's whinging so much. I'm trying to put my makeup on and get to work. And he said, honey, he needs water. I said, I just put water in there, you know. So at, at, at the beginning, I was really annoyed originally that I had to sort of constantly stop what I was doing before I was going to work and coming home to sort of start doing things with him. And my husband's like, well, this is a part of owning a dog, babe. I'm like, well, I don't know. I've never done this, you know. So I was slightly, I guess, ignorant because I thought it would be easy. But him being a boxer puppy, yeah, it was a handful. When do you have your first child? Yeah, and did Bruno, Leah come in? Leah come into your life? Yeah, we had Bruno. So he was Bruno was already four or five, and then Leah came into our life. So we already had him for four or five years, and then Leah came into the picture. And Leah, we got her. I think it was like October. We fell pregnant by the next March, and Bruno was born by the following. Uh, Vito was born by by the following December. So yeah, we only had her for like a year before. Yeah, round about by Vito was born. So it was a long timeline. Bruno had a lot of time with us versus when Leah came. She had a shorter time with us. You know, yeah. Leah actually came to us. Yeah, as an as an adoption, I guess you could say. Uh, we ended up forming a Gold Coast Boxer Club. So there wasn't many boxes on the Gold Coast and every time I saw one, I just went wild. So I said to my husband, I'm going to create a boxer club. And because they're very specific with the way they play and other dogs will get offended, you know, because they use their sort of front hands or paws a lot, you know, in their play, which a lot of other breeds didn't like. So I created this group. And as I created the group, I there was eventually a lot of members coming. So we would go on play dates, lots of play dates. So our life revolved around Bruno every single weekend, every single day. So Leah's owner actually reached out to us and said that she was quite unwell. We had met her before at Bruno's birthday parties because that was just the usual for us. We threw him birthday parties. So she was a lovely lady about in her 50s and she reached out to us and told told us she had cancer. So um, she actually had cancer. She was very unwell and she had two boxes, one of which had died from bloat. So she said to us, you know, could you maybe foster Leah? Could you find somebody who could foster Leah, you know, because you're great candidates, you know, you have a big community that you can tap into. So we thought, sure. So Andrew and I had talked lots of tears later. My husband says to me, why don't we take her? Why don't we foster her? Why don't we take her, you know, until this lady gets better? So we actually, you know, propositioned her and said, look, we can keep her for a month, keep her for two, just until you get better. Because obviously she was hoping to leave. She was hoping to cure this cancer. As time went on, she realized within the first one or two months that she actually wasn't going to live that long. Unfortunately, she got a bad prognosis and she actually, yeah, said, you know, could you keep Leah? She's yours. Like, she's yours. You know, no money exchange, no nothing, just change the ownership. She's yours. So, yeah, there was a lot of fights going on beforehand between the dogs, um, a lot, you know, so... Lots of scratches, lots of blood drawn, lots, yeah. I mean, you know, you've got two big boxes. Bruno was about almost 40 kilos. Leah was probably about, the, you know, she was a lot skinnier then. She had been at the kennels. So she had lost a lot of weight. We don't actually know what happened to her there. She was very, very unwell. By the time she got to us, she was fearful of even the blinds being drawn down. She was just fearful of thunderstorms. She was fearful of everything. So we had a big mission and a big task with her and with the both of them. At first, we were hesitant because of Bruno. He was our number one priority. But at the same time, we had committed and we fell in love with her. And uh, giving her back was never an option or giving her away was never an option. So we just committed and said that was that. So I fell in love with her immediately. Andrew was a little bit slow to, to want, you know, to sort of get to me. Bruno was his boy. Uh, but lucky we had my best friend and myself and my husband working from home. So there was actually three of us. And we would actually physically watch them at every meal time, um, at every play time, at every. So we supervised and monitored everything for the first three months, and after that three months, they were just inseparable. You know, it's hierarchy because you know, obviously, she had come from this previous family, previous also sibling that she had who passed away. She had experienced a lot of loss. Then her owner passed away. You know, it was a very sad time. Um, I actually ended up miscarrying um, at the time. She was very highly attached to me. We didn't know why. We just thought she preferred females. So I actually wasn't even aware that I was pregnant. She was on top of me. She was sniffing me. She was on my stomach. She would not leave me alone. I could not shower alone. I could not go into the bedroom alone. She followed me everywhere. So she was highly, highly intuitive. And she was just beautiful, had the littlest face, you know, longest eyelashes. 
so yeah, we actually fell pregnant and we lost that pregnancy. And yeah, that was a huge, huge loss, huge grieving period. And she really got me through all of that, you know, and same as Bruno, he, when I had my grandmother pass away, he was there for me every single day, nudging me along. So yeah, these dogs together now just became this, this core unit, you know, we became a pack, like a family of four overnight. And we had her for about a year um, by the time my son was born. So my son was born in 2018. And yeah, that, that, I mean, that's a whole other layer. You know, being a dog owner to one, then being a dog owner to two, one of which you've adopted already as an adult dog. But then you add in an extra layer of you have also your best friend living with you, which was, God, thank God, because I think I would have just lost my marbles if it wasn't for her. And then you're pregnant and then you're bringing home a newborn. So everything became about the dogs. It was like how the dog's going to take to the baby. How are we going to introduce the baby to the... It wasn't even like how are we going to make sure that Vito's loved or Vito's nurtured. Like, yes, that part was looked after. But it almost immediately became... They were on our bed every single night. So all of a sudden I got this idea that they should be off the bed because that's what people were telling me. You know, you should get your dogs to get off the bed. You're going to have a newborn. It's not safe. I never felt unsafe around the dogs. I never felt like they could ever harm anybody. And that wasn't me being naive, but that was me just having this trust for them and the trust they had for me. So I thought, why do I have to start changing things? But I thought now I'm becoming a parent, so I have to be different. Luckily enough, I came to my senses and so did Andrew. And we literally brought this newborn home and I Googled and Googled for months on what the right introduction was. How did it all go down? I mean, were the dogs going, what oh, is this other bag? I, I don't know this dog breed. You're not a boxer. You're not a Labrador. Uh, oh, you're not a... These dogs were just awesome. I just like, it brings tears to my eyes now because it's taking me back, you know, to a really wonderful time in our life. And so we basically figured out that the best way was to, because they hadn't seen us in a few days, I would, my husband would walk through the door. So we'd bring the baby capsule in and put it in the garage my husband would walk through the door and close the door and go in the house. And he said, hello, guys. Hey, daddy's home. Daddy's home. So then they went, woohoo, daddy's home. Then I came in behind him, you know, and I said, hi, mommy's home because I hadn't seen him in a little while. So I was kissing them, loving on them. We gave them a bone each, you know, we just I, we sat with them and everything. And prior to that, we had sent out a baby blanket uh, for their scent for the dog. So my brother-in-law got a specific blanket that I purchased that we rubbed the baby in. <laughs> he got the blanket and he drove to our house and then he gave it to the dogs and the dogs left with the blanket, you know. My best friend was living there so she was giving them lots of love, lots of consistency. So in that aspect, nothing had really changed, which was great. So we sort of went in increments and then we opened up the door to the garage and we put the baby capsule, like we held it up, you know, and then we put it on the floor. And they came in and we just let them sniff. We, we didn't intervene. You know, we didn't sort of don't this and don't look there and don't lick on the face. You know, we weren't doing that. And the dogs ran in and they just were sniffing, you know, the box of nose, sniffing under the foot, sniffing under the nappy, sniffing the side of the head. And I was just like, welcome to the family, little guy. And that was it. And since then, they were just best friends, all three of them. So how was life with your son and the dogs? I'm leaping forward a bit here, but as time goes on, what was the yeah. relationship with your uh, son, with Bruno honestly, and Honestly, it was like better than I imagined, you know. I guess they exceeded my expectations. Um, not that I had high expectations because I realised they're dogs, you know, and as much as we treated them like our family and our kids and everything, we also never blurred the line between they're an animal, you know, so you need to... You know, they were big, big dogs, so it's not like we could ever carry them or put them in a pram. So we still honoured their space and we still honoured their time and when they wanted just to be alone and, you know. So, yeah, we were very just so in sync with them and they were in sync with us. So when Vito came, when we were doing the night feeds, Leah was there. So every night I'm getting up three, four, five times a night and I'm feeding this baby and she's at my feet. The baby cries, she runs in, sits by the cot. You know, so she was like this little mummy with me, mummy with me. And yeah, Bruno used to, we had a um, a little cot and it was portable. So I used to go in the kitchen and cook and I'd move this cot to where the TV was, you know, just to move it away under the fan. It was summer. Bruno literally would go up to this little portable cot and it was on wheels and <laughs> I didn't lock the wheels. And he was sniffing through the mesh and he was going like sort of lifting up like the baby's arm. He just, he loved it. He loved him. He just wanted to see him. He wanted to be with him. 
And as time went on, um, like Andrew, you know, was take the morning feeds. So I would say to him, okay, babe, let me sleep in. You know, I've done them all night and you take the baby. I, okay, no problems. One morning I wake up, it's pure silence. I thought, this is strange. This is very strange, you know, especially when you're a new mum. Silence is not a thing. And next thing I know, I wake up, I'm panicking. I run to the living room and I see Vito in this swing like swinging he's like two or three months old in this electric swing and the dogs are on either side of him sleeping so the <laughs> dogs are manning the swing instead of the dad and i'm like babe babe like why'd you leave him in the swing what is if the dogs like lick him or have a fight near him or you know so me being this protective mother hen i was always thinking the worst like assuming the worst because every now and then they would have a tiff, you know, like let's say once every six months. But I thought, well, I can't have that happen, you know, in front of the baby. You know, he's quite small and delicate. But as he grew older, he grew more robust, you know. He would start walking. The dogs would be in front of him so he wouldn't fall. So I'd open the sliding door and the dogs would go in front of him and behind him. So they would almost sandwich him. And they were just always near him. So as he would walk, he would grab the dog's neck, you know, and he would sort of just, or he, the things he did to them, you just think, poor dogs. You know, everyone said, how's your child coping with the dogs? I'm like, poor dogs, how are they coping with him? <laughs> yeah, but they tra- They pretty much taught him to walk. So you, oh, you, you're out of the picture. Like, I think if, I think I could not imagine now having had my first child and not having had them around. Like the bond that they formed over time, we also moved houses. We ended up purchasing our house shortly after COVID hit. So yeah, we moved in in December 2019 and then COVID had hit that March and we had moved in in December. So then the dogs had this new house, new backyard, new everything. So that was a change. Uh, Mind you, the the dogs were older, you know, when Vito was born. So they were not puppies, you know, they were already established adult dogs. So they already had this established relationship with us, which I really loved. And so they were this new house. So we made sure that they sniffed beforehand. Like I said, everything was about them and their adaptation and their happiness. So we treated them as if I would treat my husband or my child or my best friend, you know. And as Vito grew older, you know, it was playing ball, it was playing fetch, it was just jumping on the trampoline. Leah would be on the trampoline because Bruno was a bit heavier and a bit more senior. He used to jump up on the trampoline and winch, like put his front paws. I said, what's up, mama? You want to come up? So I'd grab his bum and I would like just lift him. And it was like, I'd put my back out, you know, I had to bend my knees and he would go to the trampoline. He wouldn't do much, but he just wanted to be part of the fun. So look, life was busy, it was chaotic. We were lucky enough to work from home, even during COVID. So like we spent, I think, a lot more time with our dogs probably than what other people do. Because, you know, most people have to go to work and then they come home and they walk the dog and do the dinner. So their time is very limited with our animal, you know, with our animals. But with us, we were with them 24-7. They would love that and you guys would love that as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, honestly, 100%. That's why I think once they died, it made the transition so hard because, you know, it wasn't capped like our time with them. It was our time with them was just limitless because every morning, every night. So they were integrated into our work life, into our parenting life. So when they left, I almost felt like lost. It's like, what, how do I live now? How, how do I wake up? How do I continue my morning routine? How do I, how do we do our work? They're not around. They're not, you know, barking at the mailman. You know, like even the mailman was like perplexed as to where our dogs are because, you know, one ring of the doorbell and that was it. They would, you know, they would go off. So they, yeah, when you came to our house and you opened the door, it felt like I had 50 dogs, but technically I just had two. <laughs> that was the feeling. You had to get through the two dogs and then you had to go through the toddler, like through the little child. So there was all three yeah. of them running as a pack. And we just, we felt content. We thought we don't want to have any more kids. We were quite happy with the way our life was. And we were not really looking to, like I said, my little son, if you ask him, do you, do you have dogs? He would say no. If you said, do you have a brother and sister? He would say Bruno and Leah. I love that. So yeah, we would go out to the shops and I'd say, come on, honey, let's go. He'd say, no, mommy, I want to stay here. And I said, honey, no, brother and sister waiting at home for us. So brother and sister go to eat dinner. We go home, have play. I'm like, yes, honey. So this is how it was. So even he learned like bedtime. So bedtime routine, the dogs are on the bed. They're reading a book with us, you know, bath time. They drink, they're trying to drink the bath water with the bubbles, you know, which I'd always get mad about. Get out of the bathroom, you know. So 
they were just part of every single little thing that would occur and I would hate leaving them. You know, when we had to actually go out and go to parties, I just hated leaving them. And you lost Bruno and Leah pretty close together, didn't you? <sighs> yeah, so look, Bruno got unwell. Um, he, he This year was just a big year for us and Bruno started to sort of go – Constantly throughout the night needed to go to the toilet, needed to go pee, wanted to go in the backyard. He's drinking. I thought, what's going on? You know, keeps him getting up through the night and whinging at me, wants me to open the door for him. My husband said, babe, he's getting older, you know, like he's 10 years old. He's getting older. Like that's just part of an older dog, you know, he incontinence and all that. Uh, as time went on, he actually developed a massive lump on the side of his body. I think what's it called, a lipoma or what do they call it? You know, boxers are prone to that. A lot of big chester dogs are prone to that, even Frenchies and that sort of breed. On the side of his body, it actually grew so large. So he actually, we operated on him. We spent a lot of money. Uh, we tried to rehab him. We did our best. We didn't want to just euthanize him and let him go because his heart, his lungs, everything was perfect. So we actually yeah. thought he had a good chance to, you know, to live. Obviously, that's just us wanting to be selfish and hang on to him and have him around for as long as we can. Uh, but it was quite, I guess, traumatic and a lot and shocking because he was quite healthy and so was Leah. So, yeah, we, she was only eight years old when she died and he was 10, which everyone says for boxes, that's good. But I think when you love your animal, you love your dog, you want them to live forever. There's never enough no. moments, time, weeks, years, whatever. No. Never enough. No. He actually yeah, died. Um, he passed away in, it was in September. Um, God, all my timelines so blurred because this year with them has been a huge blur. And then since they've died, it's been a huge blur. You know, what we talked about grief brain. So yeah, he died in September and then Leah died in October. So it was only like oh, wow. a three, three week period um, between the two that they had both passed. And when he passed away, it, yeah, it shook her. It shook us. It yeah, it was such a big, big, big adjustment. And, you know, for having a little son who's four years old who totally understands, he's never had a different life. You know, this has been his life, like him and the dogs, like his brother and his sister. You know, he never asked for more babies, never asked for four siblings. This was his family. So when Bruno died, you know, he couldn't understand. He's like, Bruno's dead, mummy. He's gone. He's going to come back tomorrow, you know, so his little brain was trying to rationalise what was going on. And we were also experiencing grief for the first time while we were parents. And that was a very different sensation because, you know, prior to having him, when somebody died in our life, you know, you could stay in bed all weekend. You could cry. You know, you could scream. You could punch something. You know, you didn't have to worry about, oh, you know, how's it going to affect my son or my daughter? But all of a sudden I'm having to cry. And then I'm having to run back inside, wipe my tears, <laughs> deal with his feelings. Yeah, so it was, it was a big, big challenge for us. How do you explain that to a young child, what's happened to their, their dog when the dog's passed away? Yeah. That must have been just heartbreaking. Yeah, so the morning, um, what had actually happened was he passed away in the car. So he was actually passing away that Saturday night while we were putting my son to sleep. And every time I came close to him, he started sort of like crying, you know, um, Bruno, he was on his bed in the corner of the house where he had his little rehab bed. So I thought I have to move, something's happening. And I saw his pupils were dilating and I just saw things were changing, you know. And um, I thought, okay, it's, you know, his breathing was becoming really laboured. And you could see he was struggling. It's like he saw me and he wanted to just sort of hang on because dogs are stoic and they see the owner and they see you being sad. So they try and hang on for you. So I thought I have to move out of his sight, out of his vision. And um, my husband went in the room with my son and my son also started crying. He said, well, is Bruno going to die? Is Bruno going to die? Because he had been at the vet uh, with me, you know, with Bruno. So he had sort of already known this was happening. So we had our, you know, we tried our hardest to be honest with him. You know, Bruno's very sick. Bruno has to have an operation. Bruno's at the vet. You know, Bruno's on a drip. And Bruno, so we were very, very honest, you know. We always told the truth. Um, you know, we just said he's going to the vet, he's going to get better, you know, the vets are trying their hardest. So he, he was very well aware of the lead up. So it wasn't anything that we hid from him because we didn't want Bruno to die and then for it to be what? Like you guys said he's better, you know. So we were very, very honest with him. Um, and then that night he passed away in the car on the way to the vet. And we kept his body overnight and that was a choice I made. And I said to my husband, I just want to keep him overnight. Because, you know, we have time and his body will be okay and he can get picked up in the mornings by pet angels, you know. 
So then that morning was really, really hard. So we slept all in a room together, me, my husband, Bruno and Leah. So she slept on top of him and on top of me. And we all just hugged. And in the morning, my son gets up and I was already up. And the first thing he says is, where's Bruno, mummy? Has his little blanket, has his little dummy. He looks around and he says, where's Bruno, mummy? And I was just like, oh man, like it was just a lump in my throat. And I thought, how am I, how am I going to get through this? You know, like, how am I going to articulate this? I'm still grieving. I'm still processing, you know, Leah's not herself. So he, I said to him, let's draw a picture. And he says, okay. So we get to the table, he starts drawing a picture. And I said, do you want some breakfast? Gave me some breakfast. Mind you, this is like 6am, you know? So I didn't want him to wake up and say, look, your dog's dead. And that's that, you know, he's eating his breakfast. And I just eventually said, you know, honey, you know, Bruno's passed away. And he said, passed away, mummy, he's in heaven, he's gone now. I said, well, honey, his body's still here. But I said, his soul, his spirit has gone high and he says to heaven. And I said, yes, because, you know, we've already, like, this is, we've already had discussions about these things before. So our communication style with him is already very open. Um, so I guess it just depends the way you parent as well. Uh, we just treat him like a person versus treating him like this little child. Um, but also we sense her what we say, you know, we don't treat him like he's a 15 year old, he's only four. So then he says, I want to see Bruno. And I said, okay, honey, do you want to draw him a picture? He says, yes, we come into the room. He sees Bruno on the little bed and, you know, he gives him a hug and he's sort of playing with his lips and he says, mommy, Bruno not open his eyes. Like, oh, like he's sort of flicking his features, you know, touching his nose, like his nose, kissing him on the nose, touching his ear. And then he comes up on the table and he starts drawing a picture. So we drew him a picture and I drew him and I wrote him a letter from Bruno. So from Bruno to Vito saying, dear Vito, I'm sorry, I couldn't stay. Thank you for being the best little brother. And I'm sorry, I have to go and I'm always going to watch over you. So that way sort of he has the memory. And I also emailed him as well of everything that had happened. So as he gets older, you know, he'll be able to have a recap of sort of what had happened. And yeah, because we knew it was going to be a shock for him as well. So Christmas coming up, it's going to be very different for you and your family. What, yeah. what are your plans? Oh, look, like the thing with grief is it's so complicated because it comes in waves. So you go from shock horror to I can't believe this is happening and then one dog and then the second dog. And then explaining that to my son, which he sort of losing Leah wasn't didn't register for him because when her body got brought home, we had to actually euthanize her in the end. So we had one last day with her at the beach and that was her favorite place on earth. And it's where she used to go as a puppy. So the last day we spent with her there and I just cried and cried and cried. So I think we knew what was happening with her. So it gave me permission and it gave me time to just really like you with Monty, you know, to really savor that time and to slow life down. And that's what I'd recommend to anyone. It's just wait, if you know it's happening, slow time down, you know, don't be afraid to forego other commitments. And when she had passed away, you know, and her body got brought home, he ran in the room and he said, Mummy, Leah's dead? And I said, yes, honey. And he goes, okay. And he just walked away, you know. So he sort of, yeah, I felt for him. I felt for him as a mum. And then I felt for my husband because we went from being, you know, like five people in the house, which we didn't see them as people, you know, five people to three people overnight. And like I said, we never really wanted to expand our family because we felt like what we had was enough. And all of a sudden overnight, my husband says, we're having 10 dogs, we're having 10 babies, we're, that's it, we're expanding this family, you know. And I just said, no, I need a minute of pause. Like I need a minute to, of silence to really just treasure their memory, to look back, to go through their photos and their videos. Like I can't just rush in that quickly again into getting another dog. I just felt like they deserve this minute of silence. And, um, yeah, Christmas for us, we're not hosting it this year. Usually every year we host. So I actually said to my family, I can't do it. It's too hard. So actually my mother-in-law will be doing it. Um, that's another layer is, you know, every occasion, every party, every sort of, we'd have fire nights with corn. The dogs would be there on the bean bags. There was such a big integrated part of it. Like everyone loved them. Everyone, my niece fell in love with them. You know, she's 10 and Bruno's 10. So my sister was actually pregnant with her when Bruno was, you know, coming into our family. So I think with the dogs, it's not just their death, it's also what they represented. A certain period in your life that you're never going to get back. You know, if you encapsulate that 10 years that you've had with that animal or five or whatever, you think that's never going to come around ever again. And I just needed a minute 
to savor that and to digest that and, and just figure out what this means to us, what this means to me, what this means to my son and not rush into anything again. People kept on saying to us, they were so lucky to have this loving family. They were so lucky to have you guys, you know, and your son. And I said, no, we were the lucky ones. We were, not the other way around. I said, we gave them food, shelter, water. We gave them those basics, you know, and obviously love and everything. But they gave us so much more. I mean, I couldn't have survived my miscarriage, like, without Leah there. I couldn't have survived my grandmother's death without Bruno there. So I actually owe them my life because they saved mine. So I think often the perspective is, you know, when you're grieving, people just say the shittiest things, you know, they just say things like, you're so strong and be strong and, oh, you know, just look look on the good times. You look back on the good times and you're like, shut up. Like, I know there was good times. Now there's no more good times to come. When you're grieving, you're in this vortex and it's like so dark and you feel like you're never going to see the light. So then when people are saying to you, oh, there'll be more times ahead and, you know, why don't you get another puppy and why don't you, all these things. You're like, I'm not ready to do that yet. I'm not ready to have another child or another dog or another, you know, because no one is ever going to replace them. You're very slow emotionally to to move on, you know, Um, and every time you see a butterfly or we see a bird or anything like we just, it reminds us of them. You know, and your grieving is forever. You will grieve forever. But while it's raw and it's just, it's in your flesh, you know, and you just see these photos and you watch these videos and you just want to stay there for days, you know. You just want to stay sad for days, but people just don't let you. Work doesn't let you. (laughs) Life doesn't really let you grieve in that way because you need time, but you feel like society is moving so fast. So you're literally sitting there so sad and you're looking out to the world and people are like just doing their own thing and you think, how can the world continue to live while my world is continuing to like collapsing on top of me? It's like, how do people know that Bruno and Leah like, you know, meant so much to me? So then you become really isolated, you become very lonely um, and you become very reluctant to share the grief. Also, there's the stigma of dog grief because when people learn that it's a dog that's died, they're all of a sudden like, oh, you'll be right, like, Oh, you know, they sort of don't take it as seriously as if it was a family member. But the thing is, your dog lives with you every single day. When my grandparents passed and even Andrews, we didn't cry this much on, you know. And my husband said, we we didn't even cry this much when people in our life died. And I said, honey, they didn't live with us every single day for 10 years. Like it might only be a 10-year block or a five-year block with Leah, But if you multiply that by how many hours we spent with them, that was a lot more than what we spent living with other people in our childhood. And I said to my husband, what's happened now in this case is when you go through marriage or you go through a divorce or you go through moving or anything or childbirth or you're getting your animals or your animals are dying, you actually see through these hard moments who's there and who's not there. You know, you think you might have had a good friend for 20 years but then your dog dies and that good friend maybe is not really there or maybe he's just saying the stupidest things or does it really care? And you think, hang on, I don't even want you in my life anymore. That's what happened to us. And I said to my husband, this is not just a losing of, of Bruno and Leah. This is a loss of myself. This is a part of loss of Vito's childhood. You know, this is going to mark him now forever moving forward. He's going to mention, I mention their name every day, every day. You know, we, we don't sugarcoat it. We don't just say they're gone to heaven and that's that. We talk about them every day. And I think if someone doesn't want to listen to me, if I have a friend who's not sympathetic or compassionate, I don't freaking need you there. Because at the end of the day, loss is loss. It doesn't matter. You could be losing your house. It could be losing your animals or loss of marriage or loss of whatever it might be, right, or loss of job. And people, it's not, it's common sense. It's not hard. It's not hard to be kind. And like the saying goes, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say it at all. And the, the best thing you can say to someone is if you're not sure, if you're listening to this podcast and you have a friend who's lost a beautiful dog, you know, say to them, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say. You know, I do want to help you. Can you please let me know what you need? Like, what would you like for me to do? And say, can you just come and clean my house? Can you actually just cook me a meal? Leave some meals at the front door and don't bother them. Leave some meals for the family and then just go home. There's so many different ways to help that it's given me so many ideas as to what resources to build for people to sort of help without having to just say dumb stuff. All of a sudden, I had nothing to give because all I was giving was to my son So I still had to parent, regardless of how sad I felt. Every night I'd go to sleep and I would cry myself to sleep every single night. I'd wake up in the morning and I would actually forget that they were gone. 
So I'd wake up and it was almost like my dreams playing a trick on me. I'd wake up and go, shit, the dogs are gone. So the first morning that they were both gone, the house empty for the first time in 10 years, I lost it. Like I was shaking. I was losing it. I was just like purging all of my emotions. I come out. My husband's trying to make me a coffee. I'm a mess and I just cannot, I can no longer hold back my emotion because your body knows when you're lying to it. Your body knows when you're holding back and your body's saying you need to release this emotion in order for you to live again, right? Absolutely. You can't contain it. If you contain no. it, you're going to explode and then you're going to become that vicious person, right? My little son said, Mommy, you sad. And I said, Honey, yes. And he said, You sad, Mommy? You know, you miss the dog. I said, Honey, I miss them because I want to hug them and they're no longer here. So I'm trying to articulate my emotions and my thoughts and all these sort of things, you know. So I, I'm being vulnerable. How am I going to teach him to be vulnerable and honest and good and kind and all these things if I'm not modeling that? So I just chose to let my defenses down, my guard down. I'm no longer just a parent. I'm also a human, a human who's gone through something really traumatic. Another thing that the loss of them did was, which maybe it did for you and other people, is when you lose them, it brings back other losses. So with each animal, you lose a part of yourself. And then also it, all the traumas you've had previously, maybe as a child or as an adult or in relationships, comes flooding back. So it feels like you're starting from scratch again. That's how it felt for me. I saw this huge mountain and I thought, I'm never going to incline that. Like, that is so steep. I, how am I ever going to? I couldn't wrap my head around what was happening. And I said to my husband, I can't even, I just washed my face and I feel like I can't do anything else today. And he said, so don't. And I said, but I have to do this. I have to do that. And he said, no, you don't. I'll do all of that. So it's really important that if you've had a loss, you know, to surround yourself with good people that you know are going to be there, that you know what have your best intentions at heart and articulate how you feel. You might not know what you need or what you want, but let that person take the burden from you just for a minute, you know, especially through parenting, you know. So he actually took Vito out and I just cried. I wasn't productive. I didn't do anything productive. I just cried. And he came home and it was four hours later and he's like, oh, are you okay? And I'm like, I just cried. So, you know, it's going to be like that. It's going to be up and down. But it's just surrounding yourself with the right people is really crucial. I feel like I could talk with you for days. I'm really honoured that you've come on to Never Just a Dog podcast, so I yeah. can't thank you enough. Oh, honestly, John, it's, I'm so glad we connected and I'm so glad I found your podcast through my own desperation, <laughs> through the tears, through the sadness. And I just like, because I put notes here, because I just thought I just want to give just maybe three tips or just five tips for anyone who's listening, right? Like, First, I want to acknowledge the person's pain, you know, if they've lost their, their animal, whatever the animal is, a cat or a dog or a bird, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's actually totally irrelevant. I want to first acknowledge their pain. Second of all, I just want to tell them, and this is stuff I've been telling myself, so it's actually just a reminder, right, is be kind to yourself. Don't grieve on other people's timelines. Always remember to say their name. Take your time. Don't rush. Sit in the discomfort. It's okay to feel the pain. It means that there was love. Do what feels good. Listen to music. Have a glass of wine. Whatever, whatever you need, right? Just do it. And don't be afraid to ask for help um, because you will go into a dark place and it might be now or it might be in a year, but reach out to different resources. I Googled some of them as well. They have online chat forums and all this. So it's actually a huge thing. We talked about this. It can forge into depression. It can forge into anxiety, which it has for me as well, um, you know, in different ways. So it's okay to acknowledge it. It's okay to ask for help and look for a safe space to release all those emotions. So I just want to remind people to have a glass of water and to have a meal and eat some food, please, and please have a shower and, you, and it's going to be okay.